The uncle I had lived next to in college was something of a film buff, but not in the way you think. We never talked about Citizen Kane or The Godfather or All the President's Men or anything you'd hear at NYU. We never talked about them, but there were plenty of films that he claims you must watch. Films like Mad Max. When I admitted to him that I never watched any of them, he was flabbergasted, even appalled. Then, when I admitted to him that I saw the entire film series on sale at Walmart for $25 and made an impulsive buy to do so, he began to brew an idea. He invited me to his house, where we got chimichangas from a nearby Mexican restaurant, the only one to stay in business the whole time I was in college, and we proceeded to watch every single Mad Max movie in one night, from the first indie film with Mel Gibson to Fury Road with Tom Hardy. We even watched Beyond the Thunderdome, where the main villain was the late but great Tina Turner. And both he and I enjoyed it so much that we turned this into our weekly tradition. I found a new movie, whatever movie that was on my watch list that I had to watch. Ideally, one that was also on his watch list of this is a necessity no matter who you are. And I then began to discover a side of film and television that I had never been exposed to. Films and shows like Blow, The Wire, Beautiful Girls, the show Fargo, Planet Terror, Pink Floyd's The Wall, Gridlocked, and that's just the tip of a five-year iceberg. A half-decade of cinema I never knew existed, let alone was even valued. Borealis Entertainment presents Get Lost So You Can Find Your Way Home A Podcast and a Memoir by M.K. Lott Chapter 26 The Watch List, September 2023 With the downtime that I received from the layoff, I decided to revisit this list of movies and update it accordingly. I think I spent almost all of September watching at least one movie a night, and I think it's easy to say, I've got a lot to talk about. So, I'm going to try to knock all this out in one episode like a psychopath, or I'll just split it up into multiple episodes. But the intent of this more unconventional episode is to show you guys a list of stories that maybe you've seen, maybe you haven't, maybe you've heard of, maybe you haven't. But it's a list of stories that were on my mind and that I want to open up to the world with the hope that it could give you, the listener, something to watch, something to ponder, or something to consider as just a film that exists. And hopefully, talking about these films, even very briefly, could potentially have the same impact on you as all those previous movies had on me when my uncle recommended them to me. But keep in mind, these are not the same movies that my uncle uh, says are must-watches, but they've always been on my watch list, so consider this me recommending each one to specific people. <laughs> so, here we go with the first one. The first film was It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. Now, this is a comedy about four men who are traveling separately 
across the Nevada desert, and they witness a car accident. And out of the car accident is the driver, and the driver's dying breath is that there are, I think it was $300,000 worth of cash in a suitcase somewhere on the California-Mexico border, which in today's dollars is about three or 30 million, somewhere around there, but it was at least seven figures. And the rest of the film is about the four gentlemen and whoever they're with, if they're with someone, all racing to get to this cash. And I was honestly not super excited to watch this film because out of all the movie genres, comedy ages the worst. It ages like a, like a warm milk. And I think you can see that with some of the earlier films. But I'm very happy to say that I was pleasantly surprised by how well this film was held up 60 years later. Which is even more impressive when you realize a lot of films like this don't last well even after a couple of years, or they stay funny exclusively to a generation that will find it nostalgic. Like, you ever watched a movie that your grandparents grew up with, and they're laughing their heads off and you're not? I was expecting kind of that same feeling. But it wasn't at all. I was almost hysterical the whole time. And although I couldn't help but feel like the premise for this movie would actually make kind of a fun thriller, because everything about this is just paranoia after paranoia, it was still a really fun time. And it almost reminded me, I, I think this was like the original version of a 90s film that came out called Rat Race that had Whoopi Goldberg and Seth Green. If you've seen that, then you'll love this movie. Now the second film is very, very different. The second film is Killer Clowns from Outer Space. And I'm not gonna say the premise because it's exactly what you think it is. And before you ask, no, it's not good. But that's what makes it good. It's a film you're not supposed to take seriously. I mean, the title alone is enough to tell you, yeah, this is not a best picture winner. And as someone who wanted to be a filmmaker when he was a little, little boy, this was a movie that I wouldn't have considered worth watching as a kid, especially because horror movies were not my thing. But as someone who wouldn't mind making a movie for the fun of it, I get to appreciate this film in a light that I don't think a lot of other people can, let alone someone who's trying to make filmmaking seriously as a career. This is a movie that, to me, you just make with a bunch of friends because you say, so check this out. I've got this really stupid idea. What do you say? Not to mention, it's always fun to see low-budget practical effects. It's just, it's a different level of inspiring, especially for back in the day. Now, the third film is Once Upon a Time in the West. I was trying to figure out how to describe the premise for this one, because there is a lot that goes on. But basically, this unknown cowboy travels to this small western town. Which, I mean, it's pretty typical, but this was kind of like one of the trendsetters for this. But the unknown cowboy is essentially finding this big baddie, right? But the big baddie is the kind of person who just 
shoots everybody in sight. Like that's kind of why he's the big baddie because no one lives to tell the tale. And it's about this unknown cowboy having a very, very good reason. You'll find out at the end of the movie, but he has a very, very good reason for hunting this guy down. And this is easily one of the best Westerns ever made. But that being said, and this may be a hot take for some cinephiles, I think the good, the bad, and the ugly is better by just a fraction of a hair. But I think in some ways that debate is kind of pointless. That's like debating between Citizen Kane and The Godfather is the best film ever made. They're both perfect in their own ways, which is already kind of a paradox. But like I said before, this is the trendsetter. It's exactly what you think of when you think of Western. The only thing that's missing is Clint Eastwood. And I do have to say that having this be my first Charles Bronson film, because he plays the unknown cowboy, it's an interesting typecast, and also to have Henry Fonda as the villain, because back then, it was unheard of for him at the time to be the villain. But this is definitely a must-watch, regardless of if you're a cinephile, or a fan, or whatever it may be. This is just a solid watch. If you have the time commitment, of course. This probably has the same level of time investment as like a part-time job. But I think out of the films that I'm going to be talking about in this episode, I think I would unanimously recommend this film. And speaking of films, the next one, we got Time Cop. So this one, I think the premise ages really well, the rest of the movie doesn't. It's about a cop whose wife is killed, and he becomes the officer of this really, really elite task force who travel back in time to basically capture and stop other time travelers from ruining the timeline. Now, I think once I say this, you'll understand why I loved it. And I didn't grow up with his movies, but somehow I'm still a sucker for Jean-Claude Van Damme. That's, that's all there is to it, because he plays the cop. I mean, I watched Kickboxer and Bloodsport in college, and most people stop after that, and clearly I didn't. And I can blame Broforce for that. So, just a quick little tangent. Broforce is a game that lets you play knockoffs of 80s and 90s action heroes, and one of the characters is JCVD from Time Cop, which is the most 90s movie I have seen in a long time. Like, from the effects down to Jean-Claude's hair. Like, everything about it is 90s. But surprisingly, that's a compliment. It's significantly better than Killer Clowns, objectively speaking, but it doesn't change the fact that it's just as fun and interesting to see Jean-Claude Van Damme in a high-concept sci-fi flick while keeping his Jean-Claudisms, namely the splits. I'm, I'm talking about the splits. You can't have a Jean-Claude Van Damme movie without the splits. That's like a Jackie Chan movie with no humor. And if you have no other reason to check out this movie, watch it for the splits. The splits in this particular film are the most... practical use of them, I would imagine you can attempt in that situation. 
that's I'm going to leave it there. You got to watch the rest of it. Now, the next film was The Great Escape. Now, this one is based off of a true story, and it actually is one of the movies that inspires me to read the book that uh, that it was adapted from. But it's an all-star cast, and the all-star cast includes Steve McQueen, which is still a household name to this day, which is awesome, and David Attenborough, the guy who documents the National Geographic documentaries. Yeah, he's like 30 in this movie. Like, I, I did not recognize him the whole time. And there's also Charles Bronson in here, speaking of which. But they all play these ally prisoners of war during World War II, and they're all seeking to devise a way to escape the POW camp and reach ally territory again. And I gotta be frank, I grew up watching Chicken Run, which is almost an exact parody of The Great Escape. And I had no idea this movie even existed. But this movie was great. I'm surprised I didn't hear about it earlier in my life with how impactful it was. That and I'm surprised that this was my first Steve McQueen movie. And like I said, to see David Attenborough younger than 70. But I think aside from those, this was kind of a fascinating movie to me because of how it ends and when it was made. So it was made in like the early to mid 60s. I think the release date was 1963, where war was still kind of patriotic, although it was beginning to veer away from it for the most part, compared to how war movies were made, you know, back in that day. And, you know, there were still some elements of that, like the marching music with the flute, the cleanliness of everyone, including the prisoners, you know, kind of the upbeat, the allied soldiers are the good guys and we're going to win, you know, that kind of vibe. And it's certainly not as gritty as like Band of Brothers or Saving Private Ryan or like it was a kind of war movie that glamorized us in a way that we kind of lost after Vietnam. And when I mean us, I mean Americans specifically. But it doesn't shy away from the reality of the situation, despite having all those like cliche nuances, right? Like there are characters that I loved that just get shot on sight in this film. And I mean, I don't really necessarily think this is a spoiler, but it has one of the most bittersweet endings I have ever seen. Right, and, and it almost like, it helps that they didn't dumb down the Nazis. I think that was the big thing. Because when you make the allies look super, super good, you kind of have to make the Axis powers look kind of like one-noted. There wasn't a lot of that in there. I think the best comparison to The Great Escape would be the bridge on the River Kwai. Like, if I was, like, a movie theater owner, I would pair these two together as a double feature. Like, that's kind of the feel that I get from this. And the sixth one, this is probably the most unconventional movie that I saw uh, out of the ones I'm going to talk about in this episode. It was Ran, 
So Ran is an adaptation of a Shakespearean play, but it's set in the middle of feudal Japan. And that's pretty much it. All you really got to know about this one is the guy who made Seven Samurai, one of the best films ever made when you consider world cinema, decided to adapt, I think it was King Lear, into a film about an aging emperor who was losing his dynasty as his three sons were coming to power. And the fact that this film was even made at all is mind-blowing, only because it has the scale of a fantasy epic like Lord of the Rings or Game of Thrones, but none of the digital effects, right? Because that kind of stuff didn't exist back then. So sets and armies and costumes were literally built to make this story a reality. And if nothing else, if Shakespeare is not your thing, then hey, I totally get it. At least watch it for the scale of it. It's so inspiring to look at something and think, human beings were able to make something like this. And it's mind-blowing to think that if they did this for a film, what else can people do? Right? And just to see these wide, long shots of just covering up so much ground, it it's really one of those like spectacle movies, right? Like a Lawrence of Arabia kind of thing. And then finally, I'm already like way past my average time limit. Um, but the last film I'm going to talk about tonight is Dave Made a Maze. This is probably the least known out of all seven of these films, but I saw a trailer on it. I think it was from a YouTube channel called One Media, and I was immediately intrigued, so I tried watching it. And this film is about an artist who tries to make something incredible so he makes a maze out of cardboard but the entire maze basically comes to life and it becomes like almost a parody of the greek labyrinth and if i had to describe dave made a maze in four words it would be absurd film school charm and after watching it i can see why it did very well in the festival circuit like you know going to different film festivals and winning a bunch of accolades and awards but I feel like if you weren't a hipster that was already in on the jokes, the film just wouldn't stick the landing. At least it didn't stick the landing entirely for me. It's like they got all the narrative points right, and the production design for this film is really brilliant. Like, surprisingly, this actually wins for my favorite sets out of all the movies I watched this month. Which is kind of mind-blowing that I say that when I just talked about watching one of the greatest scaled movies in cinema history but as we've talked about before that doesn't mean it's bad it just means it just means it's different and dave made a maze made me experience filmmaking from a perspective that i don't think i had seen yet i saw it from the perspective of a cinephile and i'm sure every single one of the filmmakers that made all the films beforehand were fans of films themselves but this was the first film that I saw where it felt like the filmmaker said, I'm going to put this in the movie because I saw it in this movie, and only the true artist will see it for what it truly is. It's a bit of a stretch, but there is a charm there, and a kind of love that you really don't see all that much. Or at the very least, not anymore.
Yeah, I know it was a little unconventional, but thank you all so much for listening to this episode of Get Lost so you can find your way home. I hope this episode leaves you with some interesting movies to check out if you haven't. This will obviously be definitely more than two parts, but uh, if you bear with me, we might just find some diamonds in the rough. So thank you as always, and until next time for part two, here's to finding your way.